I mean, the depiction and everything, very, very, very not okay. Yep, it's very offensive. Very offensive. I'm going to say something. You might want to cut this out, Sean. Honestly, it was one of my favorite performances in the film. (laughs) (laughs) This is the theme song at the start of the show. Stop wasting time on the theme song. Gonna watch a movie, got a thousand more to go. Stop wasting time on the theme song. Watching everything on Disney seeming like a chore. And since I started singing, they already added more. So stop wasting time on the theme song. Just tell us the name of the show. Oh, it's called the podcast more tennis shoes. What a terrible name for the show. It's worse than the theme song. Hello, and welcome to the Podcast War Tennis Shoes, the podcast where we watch and rank all 1,764 films on Disney+. Plus. Is that two more? That is two more, plus one, minus one. They added three on Disney Plus Day, and we did an extra movie last week. We did Oz the Great and Powerful. Oh, right. So, by my calculation, carry the one... I think that's plus two, but I don't really know because I can't do the sum. (laughs) I am Sean and I am here with Rob and Bob. Rob, how are you doing today? I'm doing very well, good sir. How about yourself? Me? Well, not the best. Not the best. You want to know why? Yeah. I was all excited yesterday getting ready to celebrate Disney Plus Day. I was decorating the aluminum... Bob Chapik statue in my living room and put out the nativity scene on the front yard, little baby Yoda and the animatronic twerking She-Hulk, getting ready to sit down by the fire to read the quarterly financial statements of the Walt Disney Company allowed. And then something terrible happened. Do you know what terrible thing happened yesterday? The queen died. No, I don't care about that. I got sick. (laughs) I was super, super fucking sick. Uh, So we were going to record yesterday and we couldn't. So now we're recording today. So thank you, Rob and Bob, for adjusting your schedules to allow us to record today. Bob, how are you doing? We never got to you. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Good to know. (laughs) You heard it here first, ladies and gentlemen. Ah. So today we are doing an eh movie. Fuck are we ever. Yes, we are. This is like the most eh we've done. And uh, I, I officially want to apologize because I was very enthusiastic for this pick uh, at the end of last week's recording. Um, uh, and then I started watching it and I had a moment where I said, wait, have I, was I thinking about a different movie? Have I seen this film before? Until they got to the Forest of No Return, I honestly did not remember any of this film. And then, no, this was the one I was thinking about, and I am formally putting in an apology. Yeah, will, you will get it signed in triplicate uh, <laughs> to our to our inboxes for this pick of a film. My apologies, boys. All right, well, I appreciate it, Robbie. Your punishment is you don't get to choose for the next three weeks. <laughs> oh, shit. Fine. I mean, honestly, yeah, that's fair. All right, we are talking about babes. Babes. In Toyland. (laughs) But before we get to that, I do have some administrative things I want to take care of first. I'm going to need some recordings of the two of you saying it's called the Podcast War Tennis Shoes. 
because we've run out. We've run out of different variations. Um, so we're just going to try and record a few different ways that I can throw it into our opening song. Okay? Bobby, I'm going to start you off. Yeah. Um, I want you to say the line. It's called The Podcast Wore Tennis Shoes. But I want you to say it as if you're at Starbucks and Robbie just texted you a very complicated drink order that he wants you to place for him. And you don't really understand it, but you're going to give it to the barista anyway. <laughs> this is a good scenario because there was a period in both of our lives when Rob and I worked at Starbucks together. I can draw on this very well. At the same one. <laughs> at the same one at the same time. Somehow I was your supervisor. No, you were not. <laughs> okay, so Robbie gave me a drink. It's called the the podcast where, where tennis shoes? Perfect. All right. I've got I've got one. I want to try it like the toy maker. Oh my god, you want to try it like the fucking toy maker from this movie? You want to do it? You, you're Edwin. All right, do your best Edwin. <laughs> it's called the podcast with tennis shoes. <laughs> it's not bad. I mean, it's not it's not good. No one would be like, "Oh, that's Edwin." Okay, now now I want to try it like Edwin. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Bobby's the voice artist here. Come on. <laughs> Oh, it's called the podcast about tennis shoes. Ooh. Oh my god, Bobby, that was amazing. <laughs> what the fuck oh, yeah. was that, Rob? <laughs> oh yeah, knocked him straight out of the water. Oh my god, amazing. Okay, uh, well, Bobby, now I want you to do it as if you are a snooty waiter explaining today's specials to Robbie. <laughs> You're Abe Froman? <laughs> <laughs> the Sausage King of Chicago. <laughs> Why is all of my direction involving getting served food by Robbie? <laughs> or to Robbie? <laughs> what is this fantasy you're living up with right now? <laughs> <clears throat> it's called the Podcast War Tennis Shoes. <laughs> well done. I liked that one. All right, um, Rob, I want you to say it as if you're David Tuhi introducing the special features of The Chronicles of Riddick on the DVD of The Chronicles of Riddick. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, remember when the three of us watched that? I can't wait for this. It's called The Podcast Wore Tennis Shoes. <laughs> That's a perfect, that's a perfect, perfect impression. I love it. The Chronicles of Riddick. <laughs> you got to get the eyes staring directly in the soul. I was going to say, for those listening along at home, the eyes are what make this. Okay, Bobby, uh, I want you to say it as if you're narrating a BBC documentary and you get to the part about our podcast in the wild. Okay. <laughs> it's called the Podcast War <laughs> Tennis Shoes. You're, you're like, don't disturb them. We have three wild podcasters. Look at them go, talking into their microphones like idiots. Very special moment. We rarely see them like this. One's off in the corner, cackling by himself. Oh, that was amazing. Rob, okay, I want you to do this as if you're the president of the United States, and you have announced a major press conference, and the press all thinks you're going to announce that you've killed Bin Laden, but you're actually just announcing this podcast. <laughs> Um, <laughs> I can't do an Obama. Uh, I didn't say you're Obama. I say you're you. Don't do an impression of Obama. That's okay. Uh, I feel like I gotta shuffle some papers or something. Yo, I'll like hold up my notebook like I'm a journalist. Quiet, quiet, quiet. He's gonna say it. 
It's called the podcast or tennis shoes. We did it. We did it. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, we did it. All right, Bobby, we're going to do one more. I want you to do it as if Superman has just arrived at the Fortress of Solitude and you're the giant floating head of Jor-El and you're showing him the podcast that you're bestowing upon humanity. Okay. It's called the podcast for tennis shoes. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I like it. How is he so good at this? All right. Well, I think we've delayed long enough. Now we can actually talk about this movie, Babes in Toyland. Uh, do we Do we have to? Can we just do this one night? <laughs> <laughs> we are doing 1961's Babes in Toyland. Um, how the fuck do I talk about this? I'm not even really sure I understand what I'm watching. I had to do a bunch of research to even begin to comprehend what the fuck this thing is. Yeah, I don't understand it at all. It's based on an operetta Mm -hmm. that came out in 1903, also called Babes in Toyland, with music by Victor Herbert. It was made into a Laurel and Hardy movie in 1934. All of these movies share the same music, the same melodies, although the lyrics are adapted somewhat, and both the Laurel and Hardy and the Disney versions don't use all of the songs. But the melodies are essentially the same. Did they still sing about drinking lemonade in the Laurel and Hardy version? No, they didn't use that one, I don't think. For the best. Disney had been wanting to do an adaptation of Babes in Toyland for a lot of years. Uh, starting in the 1930s, when he first started putting together things that he could adapt into feature films. For a long time, he was considering doing an animated version of it. In the late 50s, it got transformed into a potential live action version and they ended up making this movie as a replacement for what had planned to be a sequel to the wizard of oz which we talked about last week while disney was planning to do a musical live action version of the sequel to wizard of oz and at the last minute he didn't like the script he got cold feet and he swapped that out for an adaptation of babe's in Toyland, which is interesting because there are a lot of Wizard of Oz <laughs> connections in this thing. There are, yeah. there are. The original 1903 operetta with music by Victor Herbert was produced and written by the same people who produced the 1902 Broadway musical version of The Wizard of Oz which was incredibly successful in 1902. came out two years after the book came out. It had its own songs, which were not reused in the 1939 musical, but at the time, they were very successful in their own right. They wanted to do a follow-up a year later, a new musical, so they brought in Victor Herbert to write new songs for something they called Babes in Toyland. So this always, kind of even in the 1903 version, was seen as like, let's do another Wizard of Oz. Hmm. And so what they did is they just kind of smashed together a bunch of Mother Goose nursery rhymes into, I would like to say, a coherent plot, but it's not a coherent plot. No, no, not at all. Before we get into talking about it, I want to ask, like, big picture, Robbie, if someone asked you, what genre is this? I mean, other than saying (laughs) musical. Yeah, the easier way out is musical. But if someone was asking, what what are you watching when you watch... Babes in Toyland, what would you say? For 1961, child adventure movie? But that's being very, very generous. Bobby, what would you say? Like, how would you describe this thing? It's like watching somebody film a stage play. Yeah, it's a stage play. It's weird. Like, it is tough to describe because it is a stage play. Like, the dance numbers do nothing to move around the plot live. They would have probably been fine to see. But none of the songs really move the plot along. 
one is literally about them just, why doesn't Tom and Mary drink our lemonade? That's the entire point of the song. It literally starts with a curtain raising. It, well, it, it starts with the a puppet that came right out of fucking Return to Oz, <laughs> Sylvester the Goose, scaring the... I actually screamed out loud when that thing came out, because <laughs> those vintage puppets scare the fucking life out of me. <laughs> he texted a picture of that, that to us and said, what the fuck is this? <laughs> and Sean nonchalantly said, oh, you mean Sylvester? <laughs> That's actually... I read that uh, Jack Donahue's the director, right? He's the voice of Sylvester yeah, the Goose. Yeah, it is. And I had to look it up because it wasn't immediately credited. I was like, who the fuck is Sylvester? And apparently, yeah, it's the director Jack Donahue. Is it Henry V that opens with the, like, wind blows and thunder cracks and someone introducing but there's like the kenneth branagh version of the film i think it's henry five where he gives the introduction he opens like the stage doors and it like goes yeah, yeah, into yeah. the movie like that's kind of what this tries to do or maybe kenneth branagh just saw this and ripped it off like many years later with like the opening of the curtains and then it yeah. it's a stage that's the thing is like when you're watching the intro of the film it is a stage like they're filming a play but it the third act, which seemingly comes out of nowhere and is almost not connected to the first two-thirds of the movie, takes place in a forest and is a movie. But the first, like, two-thirds are them filming a stage play. It's really weird. It is extremely bizarre like that, yeah. The the tonal shifts in the second half of the film really... They throw everything out the window. I, I thought I had a handle on what was happening. As I watched the first half of this, and I went in not knowing anything about it, other than Robbie <laughs> recommended it. I was like, oh, Robbie's favorite movie. I'm going to watch it. I wrote down, <laughs> I apologize. So I'm going to check that one off my list, okay? And so I started watching this. I was like, what is this? It opens with like the proscenium and the, the, the curtains raise. And Mother Goose comes out and talks directly to the audience and says, hey, we're, I'd like to in- invite you all to Mother Goose Town. We're going to go to this wedding and come see this show. And then the camera moves through the curtain into what is clearly a stage. Like all of the sets, they don't even try to hide it. It looks like just cardboard cutouts of houses and whatnot. And I said, oh, it kind of reminded me of like British Panto, like a British pantomime, which is also like a Christmas tradition. Weirdly enough, it's really common here in Toronto. I wasn't really familiar with it until I came here to Toronto, but tons of theater companies do British panto. They actually used to they used to broadcast them on Christmas Day on CTV when we were kids because I used to watch it. Oh, really? Year. Yeah, and like the the big like the the big one in Toronto, they would actually broadcast it on CTV. So yeah, I know exactly what you mean, and that's a really good way to look at it. Yeah, I guess I like I kind of missed that growing up, but here I've I've kind of become more familiar with them, and the tradition of that is that it is often a standard traditional fairy tale structure that usually involves larger-than-life arch characters. It's usually very family-friendly. There's often a lot of audience participation or talking to the audience, breaking the fourth wall. There's usually songs, but the songs are usually jukebox box medley songs so stuff that everybody kind of knows there traditionally is usually cross-dressing at one point where it's a tradition where there will be a dame character where a man dresses up as a woman and so throughout like the first half of this i was like oh it's a panto they keep breaking the fourth wall they keep making jokes about how meta everything is because it's a theater show it's all very family friendly fairy tale at one point we'll get to it during the uh Roma dance sequence, but there is some cross-dressing involved where a man dresses up like a woman. And I said, oh, is that really what this is? Is this the structure of it? But then, like you said, Bobby, the second half totally abandons that. Mm-hmm. And it just becomes a weird standard Disney film in a not a good one, but like <laughs> yeah. it mm-hmm. abandons the whole theatrical facade. So it's strange. I think we're so far out from 1961 that it's almost this yeah. piece of culture that out of context is just 
alien to us. Mm -hmm. Um, And it reminded me of one time I was looking up the origin of the phrase uh, cakewalk. And so cakewalk was like an early 20th century, late 19th century uh, dance. And it originated in like African-American culture. And it was this game slash dance. And what it was is you put a piece of cake on a table. And apparently, and I'm not going to describe this right because I don't really understand it, which is the point of my story. (laughs) You put a piece of cake on the table and then everybody would take turns walking towards the cake in very silly ways. And then I think whoever did the silliest walk got the cake. That's the best that I can understand. And reading that, you're like, so adults just did this? Like they just got they just got together and did silly walks? Like John Cleese from Ministry of Silly Walks. <laughs> Minister of Silly Walks. This is just what everyone did at the turn of the century. And sometimes like I, I mean, have you seen any dances, man? Like <laughs> they're all seen dumb. Any dances. Like yeah. any dance. But just out of context, you read this and you're like, I feel like I'm missing a piece here. I'm I feel like I'm missing a piece of the background of this culture. That's kind of what this felt to me. I felt like I just didn't have a lot of the background knowledge to understand what I was watching. And part of that, I think, is that in 1961, and probably even more so before 1961, a lot more people were familiar with this musical. Mm -hmm. And the music was a lot more common. There was one piece that I did know, which is the final instrumental piece, March of the Wooden Soldiers, which is very common, and it shows up in kind of Christmas medleys all the time. And so hearing that, I was like, oh, I know that one. But other than that, all of this was mostly new to me. I'm pretty sure around 1961 when this was made, this was much more of like, everybody knows these songs. That's part of what went into this. It was like, oh, this is something everybody knows. Everybody's seen the Laurel and Hardy version. We're doing a variation on that. And watching it out of that milieu, watching it now, you're like... (laughs) What the fuck am I watching? What is this? None of it makes any sense. And okay, so we'll go through it now in more detail. But the plot, the songs, none of it, none of it makes any sense. None of it fits together. No. No. Bobby, how does this thing start? Okay, so as we said, movie opens with blue curtain and terrifying puppet (laughs) pokes its head out the door in between the curtains to introduce the film. Um, starts off the film on a fantastic tone, introducing just a nice, healthy dose of 1960s sexism in regards to Mother Goose. And fat phobia. I get what he was trying to do. He was announcing her like a wrestler or a boxer. Oh, is that what the joke? I guess. Oh, I didn't even get the joke. I get that now. He says, coming in at 180 pounds and someone off stage says, Sylvester. And he kind of pulls a cheeky, goosey face. Oh, I get it. Yeah, it is. It's like, it's like a boxing it's a boxing announcer. I didn't even get the joke. I just yeah. thought I was like, that's a really mean joke. I yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was the same way. See, again, I feel like so much of this, you need to know the context to understand what's going on. I didn't even pick up on the boxing joke. I just was like, that's a weird line. Mm-hmm. That's, I mean, that was just me watching WWF at the time, Superstars, as a like four-year-old child. So that was just right what... That, that's, I think, the only reason I picked up on that. Mother Goose comes out, kind of introduces the world a little bit, pulls back the curtain, and I think it, there might have been a crane shot. The way the camera moved, I think it was a yeah, crane. for sure. Of, as you said, highlighting that they're just filming a stage play. Okay. And then they sing a song, and it's one of many songs in this movie that really horrifically overstays its welcome and goes on longer than it should. Yeah, <laughs> it does. It's like seven minutes long. And that's not the Lemonade song, or is it that It includes the Lemonade, the lemonade song? song, but it, it... It includes a Lemonade. It's like half of it is just introducing the characters and having them dance, and then like the, yeah. the second half is they sing a song about how everyone should drink lemonade as a toast to the happy couple. Our main characters, and we should introduce them now, it's Tom and Mary. It's 
Tom Piper, right? Uh, Tom, uh, Tom, Tom the Piper's son. And then Mary... Quite contrary. And those are the male and female leads, and they're going to get married. And so everyone is singing a song, celebrating their engagement and the fact that they're going to get married tomorrow, and everyone should drink lemonade in celebration of that. And again, is that context I don't understand? Why, why is this song about lemonade? Is that... Was that a turn of the century thing? Did everyone drink lemonade to celebrate weddings? It, like, it, I don't understand what's happening. Would they be doing it with champagne if it wasn't a Disney movie? Like, is there just switch the lyrics or? I don't know. The opening credits. Mary, she goes by one name. Her name in the credits is Annette. Because she she was a Mouseketeer. Yeah. Who was known as Annette okay. the Mouseketeers and she wasn't credited with her full name because I read that Disney was very adamant that he wanted to get the Mouseketeers involved as they were supposed to probably play the Lollipop Guild or someone, the, the Munchkins or someone in his Wizard of Oz make. Yeah. I was like, is this like a Madonna situation? Is this like a famous like singer from 1960s just named Annette? It, it basically is that. Well, in the Mickey Mouse Club with the Mouseketeers, they all wore shirts that had their first name on it. So she was Annette. Gotcha. And there'd be a guy named Billy or something. And then, you know, and so her full name is Annette Funicello. She was kind of the breakout star of the Mouseketeers. Like Britney Spears? Wasn't she a Mouseketeer? Yeah, she was a Mouseketeer. Yeah. So she was the 1961 version of Britney Spears because she had musical singles that were released on the Disney label at the time. And so stuff that was connected to a bunch of different songs. She actually sang the theme song to The Parent Trap, which came out the same year, which was another Disney production. Mm. So she was kind of being marketed as this big star under the Disney banner. And that's why it's just Annette. Uh, just to give a bit more comments on the crew before we get too far and I forget to do it. So, like you said, uh, Annette Finicello plays Mary. Uh, Tommy Sands plays Tom Piper. Ray Bulger is the name of the guy who plays Barnaby, uh, who is the main villain. And he's most famous for playing Scarecrow. In the 1939 Wizard of Oz. So we have another Wizard of Oz connection in this film. I, I saw that. Like, when he came on, I was just like, why does he look so familiar? Who is this guy? And then I was like, is that the Scarecrow? I brought up IMDb and I was like, holy crap, that is the Scarecrow. I mean, I've never seen anything else with that guy in it, as far as I know. But, like, that's how much of the original Wizard of Oz left an impression. Like, you could just, like, pick up, pick these people out of a lineup mm -hmm. from from that, right? Like, just seeing them in the one role so many times. Uh, there's also Henry Calvin and Gene Sheldon, who play Gonzorgo and Rodrigo, who are the henchmen. And Mary McCurdy plays Mother Goose. Um, there's a couple other characters played by Ed Edwin and Tommy Kirk, and we'll get to them later in the second half that has you mean nothing to do. Will Wheaton? <laughs> Hey, listen, we're going to talk about Tommy Kirk. The music in this, like I said, it's based on the operetta with music by Victor Herbert. The lyrics were updated by Mal Levin, and it was orchestrated by George Bruins, which we remember because they did The Adventures of Bullwhip Griffin. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I actually kind of went and listened to the operetta stuff. Lyrics updated by Mal Levin, it's mostly just adapted. Like, the mm. songs are mostly the same. They're just slightly altered to adapt to the weird plot changes that they're making. Like, it's it's very similar songs to the old operetta. Where were we? Bobby, you were talking about where we were? Sorry? it was. We're still on the opening song. And it's funny, because you said this song is like seven minutes long. I actually, it turns out I paused the movie to time it, because one of my notes is seven minutes and it's still fucking going. <laughs> it's really long. I, I full disclosure, I don't I don't remember what the second song is in the movie, 
because I just stopped paying attention and was just doing research on the cast and crew and then looked up and went, oh, I missed a song and like felt no need to go back and sing it. I think it's the one that Mary Contrary and Tom Tom sing about how they love each other. I could not tell you a word from that song because I ignored it. Might it might be the, um, and we won't be happy until we get it song that might i think that's actually the second song but tom and mary sing yeah. their love song after that song yeah but i would be surprised if you missed out on we won't be happy till we get it because it's like the highlight of the movie that's not yeah we won't be happy till we get it that's right that song i, I like that and i like that whole thing i like that barnaby was just capitalism incarnate aka dracula with a piggy bank after we get the introduction the seven minute song they sing about lemonade we're introduced to mother goose village and so everyone who lives here is just a character from a mother goose rhyme and then the camera pans up like it's the grinch and we go up to the top of the mountain and <laughs> there's an evil crooked mansion at the top of the mountain where evil barnaby is leaning out his window with his crooked <laughs> telescope that points directly down at his feet and he's looking down upon the town and he's like they sing without Grabblers, they sing without... <laughs> he basically just does the Grinch speech about how he's so angry that all these people are happy. Except they're not going to be happy for long because he has a plan and his plan is twofold. First of all, Mary, he says Mary doesn't realize she is going to inherit a bunch of money when she gets married. Except he wants that money. So he's got to make it so that Mary will marry him instead of Tom. How does he know this? It's never explained. And how does Mary not know this? Also never explained. I think it is explained in song four where she can't do math. <laughs> Wait, sorry, that is explained? No. They explained this bizarre trust scenario where... So presumably, okay, all this money is held in trust. Her parents, presumably, put this money in trust. Maybe Barnaby's the trustee. Maybe. He, like, owns the town. Maybe. So I, I imagine, like, he has everybody's mortgages and rent, so maybe he owns the bank, too. He owns the mortgage on her house, which we also don't really understand, but comes up in an offhanded line. So maybe he actually is the trustee. Despite his evil ways, and the, despite the fact that he's willing to murder, the one law he respects is the law of trusts. <laughs> <laughs> and so he's not about to break the bonds of that trust. And so he will follow yeah. the rules he only can put his hands on it if he gets to marry mary maybe the trust is in the piggy bank okay so the, the other thing that happens here <laughs> he has this plan and he has his two uh henchmen which we already introduced gonzargo and rodrigo and he wants to hire these henchmen to carry out his evil deeds so that he can marry mary and they say, well, you have to pay us. And so he's got this literal giant piggy bank, which glows like it's the fucking briefcase from Pulp Fiction. And it, there's so much money in there that the glow of the gold physically <laughs> knocks them back. I wrote that exact line down. I said they're physically assaulted by the shine from yeah. the money. Like, yeah, the money is so valuable that it actually physically blows them back against the wall. And it's visualized by these dollar signs that shoot out and hit them. And they, like, get injured by them. They're like, oh, dollar signs, ow! Yeah, and then they start levitating because they're, like, floating towards the money. <laughs> yeah, like it's a pie on a windowsill and they're cartoon characters. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So maybe that's the trust. Maybe that's the trust for Mary. Like, maybe her parents left this piggy bank in trust for her. <laughs> but it's just in his possession and he could take it any time and spend. Well, but... he's the trustee and he's not going yeah. to do it until he marries Mary because the one law he respects is the law of trust. He's got scruples. As he says in the song, he will definitely murder and he has nothing. Yeah, 
I wrote I wrote uh, that down. I'll, I will forge a check or cut your neck if we can make a dime. So he'll he'll for, he'll forge a check, but he won't take the money from the piggy bank. Well, he lists all of the crimes that he will commit, and you will note none of those crimes are. <laughs> I will disregard the trust. <laughs> um, so he sings the song with the henchman. And the song is called We Won't Be Happy Till We Get It, where they sing a list of horrible crimes that they're willing to commit and will commit. I liked this song. I thought this was a good song. Yeah, that was a good one. During the seven-minute opening dance song number, I, I, yeah, this is when I was writing, oh, I apologize. I was having my moment of being like, no, 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 I, I take it all back. I take back everything I said in previous episodes. Um... And I said, yeah, I don't remember this. I was mistaken. And then during this song, I said, okay, maybe I have seen this. Because I was like, this tune sounds familiar. And I was like, okay, yeah, no, I definitely, like, this triggered some things from childhood where they came came right back. And I was like, no, okay, I have seen this. This was the one I was talking about. I still apologize. I still uh, wholeheartedly <laughs> apologize. But it was the one I was thinking about. I wasn't thinking about the 86 Keanu Reeves TV version. The other thing I'll say about this scene is that uh, Barnaby's crooked evil mansion. I really like the set design that they have inside. Again, it's extremely abstract. They're leaning into the fact that this is a stage play. Everything is kind of looks like German expressionist. Like it's all very crooked. The the floors kind of are at a slant. The 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 background kind of like oppressively leans in towards the characters. And there's also really bright colors. Yeah. It is kind of like a colorized Dr. Caligari now that you say it, Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. And I was really intrigued. I was like, this is a weird creation, but I kind of like it. And that they definitely lost that creativity shortly after this scene. Yeah. Uh, but this entire sequence I kind of like. There's a lot of fourth wall breaking. Yeah, they talked right to camera. Even when they're singing the song, they're singing it to the audience. That's the panto thing you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. Really strange that they just abandon this whole tone. Like, after, like, a third of the movie. Okay, so Ray Bulger is at 150% in this film. Like, he is, he is not, <laughs> there's nothing subtle about this performance. He knows exactly what he's doing. His dance numbers go on way too long, uh, but I liked what he was doing with the character. It was, like, he had a clear, defined character of being just Snidely Whiplash, basically. But Dracula, Snidely yeah. Whiplash. Yeah. Um, he, he literally, like, twists and twirls a mustache. Like, it's... I, I, I dug his performance in the film. It was one thing that was getting me through this, because I was not getting anything from Tom or Mary or any of the kids there was nothing really I guess the two the two Penn and Teller um, yeah. <laughs> it's funny because I, I called them Penn and Teller too and it wasn't until I was like wait no they they are just Laurel and Hardy which are, they are Laurel and Hardy I've seen the Laurel and Hardy version of this because I'd never seen this one which is what struck me to go watch March of the Wooden Soldiers so yeah let's just comment on that so I can't find confirmation of it but Gonzago and Rodrigo the henchmen for Barnabas they're played by Henry Calvin and Gene Sheldon who actually also played kind of a comic duo in Disney's Zorro series mm. apparently they to me they clearly have to be trying to evoke Laurel and Hardy because the Laurel and Hardy version had Laurel and Hardy as the leads playing this very vaudevillian shtick and although it's not exactly the same there wasn't one of them that was a silent mime in a Penn and Teller-esque sense the fact that you have this very large character with a with a, a skinnier smaller character doing a lot of vaudevillian sketch comedy mm -hmm. it has to be this is their referencing Laurel and Hardy, their tribute to the fact that Laurel and Hardy version exists in the 30s, right? Well, and even like the like the haircut and 
that like I think it's Gonzago has and Rodrigo is like doing he's even doing like Stan Laurel type things where he's being really overly expressive with his face and and like again the not talking thing isn't him but yeah and then it was it was I was like wait yeah this is Laurel and Hardy and then rewatching it I was like okay this has to be a nod on purpose and I did I think I did read after the fact that apparently there's another tying because I think in the 1934 version when you see the three little pigs um, you hear Who's Afraid of the Big Bad Wolf, which I didn't realize right. was a Disney song. And apparently yeah. they actually, the director at MGM was friends with Walt Disney. And so he asked him if he could do it. Disney said yes. And then Disney was also apparently a big Laurel and Hardy fan. Okay. I was fascinated by that because the Laurel and Hardy version, I also watched it after watching this one. You can find it on YouTube for free. It was originally called Bates and Toyland as well. It was renamed March of the Wooden Soldiers. So it shows up under both apparently, titles. Apparently that was due to the fact that it somewhat underperformed at the time and so there's a few recuts and retitles and they re-released it a few different times to they make people think they were seeing just just to get some more traction or they renamed it just so people okay. would think it was a different movie and see it again live die repeat yeah <laughs> <laughs> and in that movie there are two very blatant disney homages slash satires the first is the three little pigs appear in the laurel hardy version and they look like the three little pigs from the Disney cartoon, which came out in 1933, the year before. And you can also hear the theme of the three little pigs, who's afraid of the big bad wolf, when the characters are kind of jumping around their houses. Three little pigs in 1933 was a massive smash. Um, it wasn't a full length feature like Snow White. It was a short, but it was a huge success for Walt Disney. The song was like a best-selling single. Is that insane to think of a short film was a massive success it for Disney? It made a huge amount of money for them. Like, that's crazy to think of now in context, right? What's even crazier, Walt Disney made like six sequels that I've never heard of or seen, because apparently everybody <laughs> was like, no, we got our fill, thank that's you. That's hilarious. Just like, <laughs> the Three Little Pigs 2, the big wolf returns. <laughs> Just different building materials. <laughs> you heard of straw, but have you heard of clay you'll believe a pig can make a house out of steel um torch talk bobby oh my god torch talk <laughs> big bad wolf getting in that steel house we're here with torch talk and bobby talking about the big bad wolf no it would be so bad because he'd be like ha, 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 but he'd have no ppe on just like the 1940s right he'd go blind and it'd be dressed up in some sort of racial stereotype as Happened all through those films. Which we'll get to. We'll get to in this Disney movie. I find it so funny that the 1933 was like this smash. And then in 1934, Laurel and Hardy make Babes in Toyland, which has the three little pigs and their theme song jumping around. It would be like the year after Shrek. Like Shrek turns up in a Laurel and Hardy movie with like Smash Mouth playing, you know? <laughs> like out of context, again... <laughs> I'm sorry, smashing Shrek in a Laurel and Hardy movie and Smash Mouth playing. Have you ever looked at Smash Mouth's Instagram? Why would I ever look at Smash Mouth's Instagram? <laughs> because when Carrie Fisher died, they posted a picture of Princess Leia and like photoshopped a Smash Mouth logo like onto her costume saying like, rest in peace, Princess Leia. And everybody was like, what the fuck does that have to do with anything? Wow. Okay. <laughs> so you saying like, it'd be like Smash Mouth on a Laurel and Hardy film. I'm picturing their Instagram from five years ago being like, okay, yeah, I see it. This could happen. Anyway, it was very of the times, right? Yeah. And like now we look at it and we're just not picking up on any of that. The other Disney meta reference satire in the Laurel and Hardy version is that one of the characters that lives in Mother Goose Village 
is fucking Mickey Mouse. Yeah. Yeah, you sent a picture of it's that. It's clearly Mickey Mouse. It's a monkey that they have put <laughs> a mouse costume on. It's, you know, it's not uh, uh, Space Jam 2 where Mickey Mouse is like, if you look closely, you can see a little special feature. No, he's like one of the main characters. And apparently Disney was okay with this. And I mean, as you said, it's like not like it's just a little thing. The movie ends with like Mickey Mouse getting in a Zeppelin bombarding all the enemies from the sky above. <laughs> I didn't watch this, but I kind of want to now. I'm going to. When we get to the third act of this movie, I want to talk about the third act of that movie. I didn't much care for the Laurel and Hardy version much more than this version. Like, again, it's just maybe at the time it really was great, but like. Watching it now, I'm like, I don't really find any of this amusing. Except the third act of that movie is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> it's so really? much better than oh. the third act of this 1961. It's amazing. We'll get to it. The other thing about the the Three Little Pigs song, I have one more note. I didn't know this background that you told me, Bobby, about the director being friends with Walt Disney and Walt Disney being a big Laurel and Hardy fan. That kind of explains it. The Three Little Pigs song, Who's Afraid of the Big Bad Wolf?, and the copyright associated with that is actually a weird, important distinction in Disney history. Because in the 60s, Edward Albee's play, Who's Afraid of Virginia Wolf, is named after a joke predicated on that song. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In the play, they sing, Who's Afraid of Virginia Wolf? And it's supposed to be a satire of Who's Afraid of the Big Bad Wolf. Except Walt Disney does not give permission to use the melody from who's afraid of the big bad wolf to any production of who's afraid of virginia wolf and so when you see that you they sing it to other melodies they sing it to either he's a jolly good fellow or here we go round the mulberry bush so they sing it to oh who's afraid of virginia wolf virginia wolf virginia wolf yeah i think that's the only version i've ever heard but the joke of it is it's supposed to be who's afraid of virginia wolf Virginia Wolf, which Disney has never allowed. And so the fact that I'm watching this Laurel and Hardy thing where that very same song is just blatantly being used in a non-Disney property kind of threw me for a loop. But I'm glad that you explained it, Bobby, because that, that now does give a bit more context. I, I, am, I am curious now if like the, algor- the algorithm will peg you singing that and that will get us <laughs> to cease and from Disney. <laughs> I'll just sing it really badly. <laughs> Virginia. <laughs> oh no, that's now over 10 seconds. Yeah. Shot, stop. <laughs> no, nah, if he splits it up, it's two separate clips. Rob, what happens next? Uh, well, the plan, Barnaby's plan, is uh, to, to get all that money in that piggy bank that he already has possession of. He's got scruples when it comes to trustee. The law of trustee is important. Yeah. Uh, so he's getting Rodrigo and, what's the other guy's name? Gregorio or something? Gonzorgo. Gonzorgo. Yeah. To uh, kidnap, but not kill, Tom. We're kidnapping him, and then we are going to throw him in the sea, but not kill him, just throw him in the sea. And then the third step of the plan is steal all the sheep from Little Bo Peep. But it's never brought back up. It's it's because Mary Contrary owns the sheep, and if she can't have the sheep, she therefore has no source of income. So she'll be broke and have to marry him. But where'd those sheep go, Bobby? The forest in a return. Oh, those sheep are fucking dead. Okay, that's what they are. They just, they just, they leave. They're never seen again. Nobody gives a shit. No, because they're fucking dead. Okay. No, because they're all dead and they all get enslaved in Toyland, the totalitarian state where the mayor and owner of the toy factory. (laughs) Listen, it's voluntary indentured service, okay? (laughs) Yeah, but they can never leave the forest of no return. Okay, anyway. uh, So Barnaby hires these guys to basically do his dirty deeds. Uh, They... 
there's a scene where Tom and Mary confess their love to each other, and the kids are that that's the song i that's the song i ignored because it's a bad song it's a dumb song yeah it's a terrible song i really don't like this tom guy he's bland as fuck no i i don't mind annette i can kind of understand why she was like a big celebrity at the time and kind of like popped Mm -hmm. out of the mouseketeers because like she does have she kind of pops off the screen i kind of like i got Mm -hmm. it i kind of figured that out tom a mouseketeer or no i don't think so he was was just else he was a singer actor at the time, but he wasn't a Mouseketeer. He was just kind of another singer slash actor slash yeah. dancer. He was a triple threat. That's what they had in 1961. And he was he's just very bland to me. The whole fucking movie's really bland. The best thing about him was his hair. Like, he's got a pretty good uh, ponce going on. He had fucking on. amazing right? hair. I, I made note of that, yeah. too. Like, it's like, all right, well, if she's, if she's with him for the hair, I see yeah. why. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, there's a scene where they confess their love to each other. The kids say, let's see if they're going to kiss but they won't even smooch each other on the night before their wedding. What is? What are these kids' relationship to Mary? Uh, they're foster kids, I think. Is she fostering them? I think because they're foster she's kids. like she's like she's eighteen. She's clearly yeah, yeah. eighteen. Is she? So she's yeah. like taking care of them. No, like they live with her. Yep, I guess that or maybe I don't know. Do they all work for her? Because she owns the she sheep. owns the sheep, so they work for her. I think the only one who works for her is little Bo Peep. Well, what do the other kids do? Why do they live with her? Yeah, they they all sleep in the bunkhouse. She's I think she's fostering these children. <laughs> like that's the only explanation I have because it's never really said what the relation is. I mean, clearly they're not her kids, uh, but they just live with her. Maybe they like. Just wandered into town, like in the movie Night of the Hunter, and she's like, <laughs> she's like sheltering them from, you know, from serial killers that are stalking the countryside. Yeah, you mean the sentient trees? <laughs> yeah, but this adds up perfectly. They live on the borders of the Forest of No Return. They obviously got lost and their parents died in the Forest of No Return, eaten by trees. Oh, that actually makes more sense. Yeah, so the kids, yeah, the kids are orphans because they're... Their parents were killed in the Forest of No Return, yes. which is why everyone knows that nobody returns from that fucking Forest of No Return. And so she's sheltering them, harboring these these uh, these orphans. Okay, that makes sense. They say goodnight to each other without smooching. The kids are all disappointed. Uh, but Mary does give a flower to Tom, and Tom is so love-smitten that he's just staring at this flower outside of Mary's house, and then gets bopped on the head by a big old rubber mallet by teller and goes into the ground that was a funny bit where he actually is just boop, smashes like down to his ankles and he's unconscious standing up holding the flower <laughs> yeah so they kidnap tom tom the piper's son and they're going to take him out to the sea to drown him like they're that's the point right like we need to make this clear they're going to drown this kid right yeah, yeah. until it will in the until we get it song there's many rhymes with and drown a boy at sea. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like part of the chorus. It is. <laughs> so, yeah. Okay. So they're going to drown this kid. And on the way there, they see a sign. And I am not going to use the word. I, yeah, I'm glad we're addressing this now. They start using an ethnic slur that I'm just not going to use. They're talking yeah. about Romani people. They see a sign for Romani people who have come through town. <laughs> or the sign to the sea. There are two signposts outside of town. <laughs> the best part is... There's a sign on a signpost pointing towards their camp, even though they're like nomadic. (laughs) I was like, who put that sign up? How long have they been there? And they say, wait, don't these ethnic slur people buy babies? (laughs) 
Yep. So yes, we're dealing with let's spot the racism again. Round one. <laughs> and uh, they decide that they're going to, instead of drowning this this boy, they're going to sell him to uh, the nomads. Right. The Romani. Yep. Because it, they, they make a point of saying, well, they buy babies, maybe they'll buy a full-grown man. <laughs> like, think of the profit we'll make. <laughs> Yeah, that's the thing. I was like, there's not really correlation between Tom and a baby, but okay. This, this movie plays real fast and loose with how old Tom's supposed to be. You know, like, it's called Babes in Toyland, and I don't think they're talking about the younger kids, because they sleep through the third act. They literally sleep through the third act. Like, without explanation. That's true. They're, like, in the room next door, and they're just asleep. Yeah, it's like, it's like Natalie Portman in Thor 2. They were obviously having a contractual dispute with Disney, yeah, and so the they slept were. through the third act. <laughs> Movie. So they they decide to sell Tom, and that happens off screen. They just say we're going to do that, so then yeah. we can pocket the cash, and then we'll also get the cash for allegedly killing him. And so cut back to Mary, who's getting ready to to marry Tom. Barnaby shows up to wish her a happy life together and bestow his blessings for the marriage. And just then, the Gonzago and Rodrigo show up as well, uh, claiming to be shipwrecked sailors who have a message <laughs> for Mary. This is <laughs> All right, Robbie, tell me about this scene. What is this scene? <laughs> Sing a song about how Tom was at sea, like 4,000 fathoms out, <laughs> and how he drowned at sea in a storm. Because he was worried that he was worthless and couldn't provide for her. <laughs> the thing is, it's not like four hours before he's singing to her on her front steps. <laughs> Can you imagine, though? Can you imagine? (laughs) The day before your wedding, (laughs) the bride and groom, they say their good nights, they kiss, they say, I'll see you tomorrow. (laughs) They say, I'll see you tomorrow. And the next day, someone comes up with a message. (laughs) They're like, "Uh, your groom went out to sea. (laughs) She drowned. She'd be like, what the fuck? <laughs> it's not even a port town. No. <laughs> like, they had to walk through that forest. He would have had to, like, walk to the port. It's been, like, it's been one night. She went to bed, she woke up, and he was drowned. <laughs> she just takes him at the word because they... Produce a letter that all of the writing has washed off of, so they just make it up. They produce a soggy letter. And as they sing this stupid song, they progressively fill a puddle of water around them. Yeah. Yeah, and again, that's like this vaudeville sketch comedy thing. Like, it had a very Charlie Chaplin-esque feel to it. Mm -hmm. Water keeps pouring out of their shirts as if they swam to shore and they've... (laughs) Kept so much water in their clothes that it literally creates a pool underneath them as they dance and sing. Because it's the only way they can explain anything. They're like, okay, I'll tell you the story. I have to dance to tell you the story and water is going to spray everywhere. Can you imagine, like, what is their relationship to Tom, though? He's a stranger that showed up like four hours before and they feel the need to go to Mary. Somehow Tom has told them their life story and, like, go to Mary and say, by the way... Uh, uh, go your your husband that I met three hours ago died. But I mean, I also like that everyone in the town is like, "Well, these guys are soaking wet. It must be the truth." <laughs> Just because they're wet. <laughs> yeah. 
anyway, so they're convinced. Yep. Tom's dead. Yeah. And Mary then is wooed by Barnaby. No. Well, Barnaby. Barnaby tries to woo her. Yeah. Well, there's an attempted wooing by Barnaby. And his attempted wooing (laughs) is to sing a song for her and dance for her to say, well, forget about Tom. He's drowned. Why don't you marry me? I have a lovely mansion on the hill. And think about all I can do for you. And so he sings a song for her called Castle in Spain. And this is, this kind of gets me to where everything about this movie is just falling apart. Because the original musical has a song called Castle in Spain, which actually shows up in the Laurel and Hardy version as well. In that movie and in the operetta, the Castle in Spain song is sung by Tom to the female lead, which is not Mm. actually Mary Contrary. It's Bo Peep. It doesn't really matter. It's the same essential character. It's him singing about how when we get married, I'm going to buy you a castle in Spain. You know, like, this is going to be our wonderful life together. It's kind of their love song. That makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. As they're adapting this, again, it feels like it's a jukebox musical. It feels like it's kind of like ABBA's Mamma Mia, where they had a list of songs, (laughs) and they had to figure out a plot reason how to fit them all in, right? Mm -hmm. So they had this thing where they're like, well, we want to sing Castle in Spain, and maybe they didn't want to give it to Tom because actually Ray Bolger is such a good dancer. They wanted him to dance the whole thing. And they're like, how do we make it make sense that Barnaby sings Castle in Spain? And so he introduces it by saying, imagine that my mansion is a castle in Spain. <laughs> my crooked angled, dilapidated mansion. So this is see, like he 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 literally opens the song with okay. Imagine for a second this makes sense. Yeah, I'm gonna <laughs> sing a song to you about a castle in Spain, but that doesn't matter because I'm actually singing to you about this like crooked old mansion over here. All right. <laughs> Anytime I say castle in Spain, talk about mansion. All right, it's a big mansion. <laughs> and then he just sings castle in Spain because they already had that song, but it makes no fucking sense. And he does it. For another seven fucking minutes. It's another seven minute song. I There's know. There's a dance interlude with a fountain. <laughs> and I, I had a note, like, how long does this fucking fountain bit go on for? That's got to be like two minutes of a song. He like does a, he does a comic bit with this fountain. It just keeps going on. Like, and Mary, who literally just found out not five minutes before that her fiance died on her wedding night, is just sitting there for some goddamn reason and doesn't just punch him in the face and leave. She's like, just watching this. She's like, can you imagine? this Dracula do a tap dance on a fountain. She dances with him at one She's point. She's forced to dance with him. She's forced to dance with him. I did like, and I don't know if either of you guys caught this, but when she puts her arm around him, she makes sure to pull out a napkin and like put the napkin oh, on that. her hand before she touches him. Oh, I didn't, I didn't notice that. That's clever. I... I caught that. I like that. That was like the the most clever part of the movie, I thought. Barnaby keeps saying, or you could marry me. She <laughs> just screams at him. She doesn't just say no. She just goes, ah! <laughs> and like runs away every time he says you could marry me. Like clearly she doesn't want to marry him because she just yells. Because he's the town's Grinch. Like, yeah. why would you want to marry him? But can you just imagine someone comes to you and is like, your fiancé is dead. Here's a tap dance of a fountain. <laughs> the best part about this whole thing is the song to Castle in Spain. It's just he's singing how evil he is. It's not like, I'll treat you right, we'll fall in love. He's just basically like, 
Come with me up to that crookedy ass mansion and we're going to squeeze the whole town dry for all yeah. their money. We'll steal everything from yeah. this town. He's monologuing his evil plan to, in song <laughs> form to Mary, who's just crying in the corner and somehow he thinks this is a good idea. Well, like the people in the town, it's not even like her friends. Like half of them are, are her wards. It's like the children <laughs> she's been looking after. And he's like, well, why don't you come with me? And we can, like, just screw these kids real good and take everything that they're worth. It makes no fucking sense. And it goes on forever. And then finally she's like, no, why did you think this would work? So she goes home. Bo Peep tells her that her sheep are gone because that was the other part of the plan. The sheep have been kidnapped. It's like four seconds later, right? It's four seconds later, but the sheep are gone. And then Bo Peep sings a song about the sheep being gone. But again, the only reason this is here is because these are the songs they have to work with. The sheep being gone is a major part of the original operetta. So there's a whole song about it. And so they're trying to figure out how do we get this fucking song about the sheep being gone in there? So the little Bo Peep sings it. Did you notice the, the, the really bad continuity error? No, what was it? Oh, um... When Bo Peep comes back and says the sheep are gone. <laughs> Does she have the sheep with her? <laughs> no, she didn't have the sheep with her. Uh, she's on the right side of the frame. It cuts back to Barnaby and he's just going, Woo-hoo-hoo-hoo. and then it, and then literally Mary and Bo Peep have switched spots. I actually yelled out. I was like, whoa, because it was so jarring seeing them just completely switch spots. It's just like they did not have a script supervisor. Did not have a script supervisor because they just literally switch pots, Mary and Bo Peep. I, I didn't notice that, probably because at this point I was just like, ah, yeah. it's going to keep going now. After she finds out that the sheep are gone, she also then realizes they have no income because they were relying on the sheep for their income. Presumably they sheared the sheep, I guess. And so then she gets another song. This is another what I presume to be one of the big numbers from the musical. You know, this is like Gravity from Wicked. So this is the big song and the song is i can't do the sum i didn't realize until the end of the song she was saying sum i thought she was saying i can't sing this song (laughs) (laughs) and i thought it was this weird fourth wall breaking moment where she's so stressed out that she can't even sing the song and i was like that's oddly fourth wall breaking and like clever and then i was like oh i I can't do the song that would be clever that would be fun i wish that was it it's not though in the original 1903 operetta this song is actually sung by children And it's sung to their teacher, who's literally teaching them a math class. They're singing about doing math and how hard it is because they're children. They're grade school kids. Again, it's a jukebox musical. So they're like, how do we get I Can't Do the Sum in there? It's a song. Everybody loves I Can't Do the Sum. It brings the house down every time. It's Why Can't We Do the Sum, which makes no goddamn sense that one person is singing. No, not at all. They have to do that thing where they, they like multiplicity her. Yeah. And again, because in the original, it's sung by a group of school children. Yeah. Which is why it's plural. We can't do the sum. Um, In the Laurel and Hardy version, the song doesn't appear, probably because they couldn't figure out a way to get Laurel and Hardy to sing about (laughs) how hard math is. Although it would have made more sense. It would have been funny. Um, But the melody appears a lot. Again, Mm -hmm. because I'm pretty sure this was like a famous number from the musical. And so they stick it in here, but they give it to... The female lead, mm-hmm. who is getting married, I'm going to assume she's around 18, but the whole point of the song is she goes, well, I have to figure out how we're going to make ends meet. I have to budget our expenses because we don't have any money coming in anymore. And then she sings a song about how hard math is and how dumb she is. 
Yep. Because math is hard for girls. It's a really awkward and just offensive song in this context, in my opinion. Oh, it's terrible. Oh, no, I completely agree. Well, that's what I was leading to earlier. It's like, why didn't you know about the trust fund? I was like, because she can't do math. She sings about it later. <laughs> it's really one of the worst things in the film. Because it's like the song, again, it's charming if it's sung by kids in a primary school context where they're singing about how hard it is to like add, subtract, and multiply because that's what little kids have to do. And they're yeah. like, oh, this is hard. And you have this adult woman and the lyrics are still add subtract and multiply math is hard are the little kids still singing about walking on their hands that's no that's not in it it's the original operetta song and you can find it and listen to it the lyrics are more strictly about math they're like math problems you know if george is traveling from this place at x miles an hour or something like it's it's literally just a fun little math song that it's just like the comedy number in the middle of the of the musical, but they give it to her to sing about how it's hard. Math is hard. I don't want to do it. I'm just going to marry Barnaby. That's literally what she sings. That's literally the lyrics. That is is the abridged version of this song for those listening along. I'm just going to marry Dracula and move into a castle in Spain. Which is better than math. Anyway, it sucks. It's bad. Where are we now? Robbie, what happens next? Uh, She goes to Barnaby and says, I'll marry you. And Barnaby <laughs> gets his two goons uh, to ring the town bell and say, Hey, everybody, I know you're sleeping. It's midnight, but I got to make an announcement that Barnaby and Mary are going to get married. And she still screams. Every, <laughs> like, yeah. She still screams when they say she's going to get married. She audibly screams. It's not like she's putting on a brave face. And not only does he summon the whole town, he's also planned a party. Yeah, he's planned a party at midnight. But even yeah, and like or- organized like song and dance and hired a dance troupe. Penn and Teller are in disguise. We'll say while they're while they're singing their song about being sailors, right? Ish. But the beginning, um, Barnaby said that they are like known criminals, and then they go around the town and summon everyone to Barnaby's With a bell. Way. They wake them all With up. The bell, <laughs> and Mary doesn't say, "Wait, weren't you the sailors?" That yeah. Like- yeah. The guy hasn't changed his facial hair. Let's talk about his facial hair right now. He, what is that thing called? Where you have a mustache that connects your sideburns that just goes straight across your cheeks? Ooh, what is that? That has a name. Yeah. He That's doesn't the... have a beard. It doesn't go below his cheek line. It's just like sideburns, cheeks, mustache. It's like the Van Buren. <laughs> I don't <laughs> yeah. know if that's actually what it's called. I'm going to call it that. <laughs> that man stands out in a crowd. He's yeah. like a foot taller than everyone else. And has this huge barrel chest and the most <laughs> recognizable facial hair. They're known criminals. There's and- only eight people in the town. Come yeah, on. Yeah. yeah. And they all have names like Bo Peep and Tom Piper. And then there's two Italian guys. <laughs> <laughs> that are always hanging out with Barnaby. Because they're literal, like, famous criminals. <laughs> they summon everybody. And Barnaby goes, yeah, and as my wedding announcement, I've planned some entertainment. And he brings in the Romani people. And then the two Italian guys look at each other and go, "Uh uh-oh, we're in trouble. Because we just happened to sell a grown-ass man to these people. We get a very long (laughs) dance sequence. We get another seven to ten minute dance sequence. It goes on forever. This one was better than the opening one, though. It was at least better. It was more entertaining. There was some good dancing. There was, like, fire twirling and stuff. There is some lyrics at one point which made me laugh. 
Although I don't know if it's good that I laughed because it's pretty offensive, but they come out and they just start saying, we are the G word. We are the G word. <laughs> like that's the lyrics. I wrote that down too. That's the lyrics of the song. I yeah. couldn't believe it. Then finally they introduce their fortune teller who comes out and their fortune teller is um, Tom. In a starring role. <laughs> yeah. In this production. In the half a day since he's been missing, he <laughs> has landed the starring role in the traveling dance show. <laughs> I thought it was weird that they t- they tell you it's Tom right out of the gate. They show him like putting on his stage makeup and getting really excited for what he's doing. And then the big reveal at the end is like, yeah, I know you showed me. No, I agree. I think it's, it's supposed to be a bit more dramatic irony. The assumption is the audience already knows that Tom's going to be there. Like there's only one Romani group of people who are going to be coming through. Obviously, Tom's in there somewhere. Let's think of the timeline on this let's just break it down logically it's been like less than a day it's been like one day because they sold it to him at night the next morning they announced tom drowned at sea yeah and then uh barnaby proposed mary said no but she went home the sheep were gone then she went back and said yes and she puts the kids to bed it's now midnight yeah it's 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 almost exactly 24 hours later and tom is the star of the show (laughs) but she doesn't tell barnaby (laughs) To that she's going to marry him until it's past nightfall. Yeah. So they threw this whole thing together <laughs> in like 20 minutes. <laughs> He's got a whole song. He's got a whole song. <laughs> Stage makeup. They all planned it and rehearsed it. He has a character. They, yeah. they all have lines. They introduced it's Floretta the fortune teller. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> It's like, we'll have this huge song and dance number, and we'll introduce you and then reveal that you're Tom the whole time. And yeah, we paid money. We took the money for you, but we're going to give you back. Well, they also got paid by Barnaby, so it all evens out. Yeah, yeah. they did. Exactly. So like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Barnaby paid for that. I want to quickly touch on the uh, the Laurel and Hardy one really quick, because it's, it's a different plot where Bo Peep lives with the old woman in the shoe, and Barnaby has... The mortgage to the to the shoe and Laurel and Hardy are trying to get the mortgage, mortgage back. Mortgage to a shoe. <laughs> I, verbatim, the plot of the film. They Bo Peep agrees to marry Barnaby, and then what Laurel and Hardy do is they show up to the uh, is Bo Peep names Ollie her best man, and Stanley puts on her wedding dress, and they don't show it. It's it's a, it's a better reveal than this, I thought, where there's a veil over top, and you hear Bo Peep's voice coming out, and then when the last vows are like, I do, I now pronounce you man and wife, they pull the veil back off the wedding dress, and Stanley is wearing the dress, and Barnaby has married Stanley instead. They've taken the mortgage and ripped it up in front of him, and Bo Peep doesn't have to marry him because Stanley has done it instead, and... I didn't mind the joke in this, even though it's like somewhat dated the way that they all go to leave and Stanley goes to go with them and Ollie says, no, you can't stay. You you have to live here now. You're married to Barnaby. <laughs> I thought that was funny. I don't even think that was dated. I just thought that was funny. I thought it was actually quite progressive because Stanley accepts it. He's like, oh, I am married to Barnaby. <laughs> well, he, he, he starts crying and says, I don't want to be married to him because I don't love him. <laughs> yeah, I know. But that's that's the progressive joke because he, he, he says, I don't love him him <laughs> as if it would be okay if he did love him but he's like i just don't love barnaby <laughs> but it, and it comes up later in the film like nonchalantly with the like well i thought you and barnaby were best friends and he goes well, yeah but that was before we were married <laughs> <laughs> unfortunately we're not talking about that version of the film we're talking about <laughs> the 1961 version so while all of this um racist song and dance number is happening uh the kids have gone in search of bo peep sheep 
And the, they were last seen heading towards the Forest of No Return. So the kids all go to the Forest of No Return. Tom and Mary, after revealing that Tom is still alive, Mary's obviously not going to get married to Barnaby. She and Tom go back home to find a note from the kids to say they've gone to the Forest of No Return. And so this leads us into basically the second half of this movie, where they leave the Mother Goose village. And the whole tone shifts. It gets very strange. Did you do one of your famous, let's check the timeline, Sean? Is this exactly the midway of the movie? It's, it's approximately the midway, but I didn't check the exact time because I didn't care enough. I was like, fuck this film. I'm not yeah, going to pause. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> but the kids go into the forest of no return. In the forest of no return, they find a bunch of anthropomorphic living trees who sing a song very reminiscent of the Heffalumps and Woozles song from yeah, Winnie the Pooh. Yeah, yeah. This is the forest of no return. These trees have got to be the worst puppets I've ever seen in my life, to the extent that it has to be on purpose. Or maybe it's not. Like, I kept questioning it. I was like, is this an artistic choice? It's real shit. Is this the same thing, like, at the introduction where they're like, this is a play. Look at our play. And this is theatrical costumes. This is the kind of thing you would see at a community theater. It looks like a high school production. It's just like foam mm -hmm. over top of a guy. And then their yeah. eyes are just like on springs, so they move around. Yeah, like what is this? <laughs> what is happening? Is this intentionally supposed to look like a high school production? Are they trying to evoke like community theater versions of <laughs> kid like babes in Toyland? Like what is going on here? It's the uh, Scarecrow from Return to Oz. They ran out of budget, so they just had to give it a yeah. horrible demon smile. I guess, well, maybe. It just seemed, it's so bad that it can't, pa I don't know. I didn't understand what was happening. I was like, this is strange. So Tom and Mary go into the forest to rescue the kids. They come across the kids and the kids are like, hey, all these trees are going to like attack us because they've been singing this song about how they're going to eat us and shit. And Tom and Mary are like, what are you talking about, you crazy kids? And the only reason this happens, again, Jukebox Musical is because they're like, we have this song called Go to Sleep Slumber Deep that we have to include in this musical. <laughs> so it's, they have to go to sleep for some reason. So Tom is like, let's just go to sleep here in the middle of this forest. It seems perfectly safe. Makes no fucking sense. I don't understand. But they do it so they can sing this stupid song that they have to cram into this movie. And then after they sing it, then the, the trees are like, oh, you've done this contractually obligated song. Great. It's our turn now to come back to life. And they wake up <laughs> and they say, you're not allowed in here. This is the force of no return. It's private property. Uh, we're going to take you to the owner of this property. And so you're going to have to answer for your transgressions in Toyland. And the kids go, what? Toyland? Where the toys are? And the trees are like, yes, it's going to be terrible. It's going to be horrible. <laughs> the kids are like, oh, that sounds awesome. They're like, oh, it's not going to be awesome. It's going to be so bad. You won't believe it. Let's just go there. Oh, you're going to be so upset when you get there. Now come along and let's sing a song while we go there. <laughs> and the song is the happiest fucking song you've ever heard in your life. Oh, yeah. They're just like marching off, smiling with these demon trees. They're just like, oh, we're going to Toyland. <laughs> Can we very quickly touch on the fact that we are at least, if not more than halfway through this movie, and they finally fucking got to Toyland, <laughs> as mentioned in the title? I guess. I, I don't really – again, it doesn't make sense. In the Laurel and Hardy version, Mother Goose Village is called Toyland. Like, it's the same place. Mm -hmm. It's not a different location that they go to because the toy maker is in Mother Goose Village. In this version, they go to Toyland, which also owns the Forest of No Return. And then – but when they go there, again, it's so comically weird and I don't know if it's on purpose. But the trees are like, 
now go to Toyland and meet your doom. And then the camera shows Toyland and it's like this gingerbread house with a rainbow. It's like the happiest fucking place you've ever seen in your life. And the kids are like, yay! And they like run towards it and the trees are like, why is everyone so happy to go to Toyland? <laughs> I think we're going to go pretty quickly through the rest of this thing. because yeah, it's I think so too. It's, it's dumb and it's fucking nuts. So they get to Toyland. It's dumb and it's nuts. And this is also the part where it kind of stops being a musical and just becomes a movie. Yep. If you can call it a movie, I don't know yeah. what was happening. They do have that one work song that they just wrote two out of the three uh, <laughs> lyrics to. And then they just made up random noises for the last whole one. Pretty sure most of this third act is just, they just made it up. You know, they got to page, like, 71 of the script, and they're like, oh, shit, we forgot to write the last 20 pages. Yeah. Oh, yeah. God, what happens, guys? Seriously, camera's already rolling. Quickly, quickly, somebody think of something. I mean, the toy maker is also one of the, I don't know, I, like, I recognize the voice, right? He's the guy who does the voice of the Mad Hatter in Alice in yeah. Wonderland, right? Like, fairly famous. Uh, also, I, I love to laugh from Mary Poppins. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, fairly famous voice, like, very distinctive voice. So we're introduced to the last two major characters in this movie. Edwin, who plays the toy maker, and Tommy Kirk, who plays Grumio, the toy maker's assistant. So Tommy Kirk was in every single Disney movie around this time. The kid was in Old Yeller. The kid was in Swiss Family Robinson. The kid was in Shaggy Dog, uh, Absent-Minded Professor. A little bio about him, because it's interesting, he was in every single Disney movie for, like, a five-year period. Wow. And and then he disappeared from Disney films because uh, he had a homosexual scandal no. where there were photographs of him with another man. Suddenly he wasn't in Disney movies anymore. That fucking sucks because that dude's it pretty great. sucks a lot because he's amazing, even in this movie. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. he's carrying nothing, but he, like, pops off the screen. I made a joke earlier, that Will Wheaton-looking dude. But, like, he's charming in this. Like, he's really good. I thought he was awesome in the show. He's a huge talent. I read a little interview with him afterwards, too, and it said that I think he, after the fact, admitted that this that he didn't think this film was very good. And he also thought it was worse than the Laurel and Hardy version. Because it is, but we'll get to that. <laughs> He he actually said that his he just really enjoyed getting to spend time with Edwin and said that when the cameras are off, Edwin was always Edwin, <laughs> even though yeah. Edwin was a character and that wasn't who he really was. And he got to know a little bit of who he really was. He said that was his favorite part of the movie. So there is another song, Bobby, in this one. We should be happy while we work. No, no, no. There's another one after that. When they put the kids to bed. Uh, oh, yeah. The other really creepy The other really creepy, song. misogynistic, you're my possession, you're nothing but a toy. Yeah. To Annette. Like, literally, you're just a yeah. toy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is the actual line. It's gross. <laughs> okay, let's just give a little broad background here. They get to Toyland, and Toyland sucks because it's run by a lunatic, Edwin, who sucks at making toys. And his assistant has invented a automatic toy making machine, but Edwin ruins that and breaks it and explodes it. I was just going to say, he's the toy maker, making toys for the Christmas deadline? Yeah, I okay. Again, this movie, okay, I'm trying to rush through it, but I can't because it's so nonsensical. <laughs> a lot of this movie, I think, relies upon an assumption that you have seen either the Laurel and Hardy version okay. or the original operetta. In the Laurel and Hardy version, the toy maker is making toys for Santa. They explicitly have Santa as a character, and he shows up, and he's like, where are all my toys this year? Okay. 
this movie, they don't explain any of that. He's making toys. He suggests there's a Christmas deadline, but you're like, is he Santa? I I was wondering that. Is Edwin Santa? Does he have a sleigh in the back? Like, what is this operation? Doesn't make any sense. Doesn't he doesn't even say who he's making toys for? Although at one point he says he needs like four million of them. Where where did all of the the toy staff go? I think they were eaten by the trees. Yeah. Okay. Or they were just like Edwin is such a terrible boss that they all left, and the only one that stayed was Gregorio. Probably. Maybe the kids' parents originally worked for the toy maker. They got so <laughs> fucking sick of working for this lunatic. Because he's clearly a lunatic. He's impossible. He's the worst boss ever. He's insane. That they left. They were obviously eaten by the trees in the forest of no return. The kids survived. But now they are wards of Mary Mary Quackentrary. Gotcha. And that's why there's nobody else left in this toy making village in Toyland. Because um, the only one who's still there is... Grumio, or what's his name? Grumio, yeah. Uh, Grumio, and well, he's his assistant, so I imagine he's probably a journeyman trying to get his hours in, so he's just sticking around just to get his ticket, would be my guess. <laughs> yeah, he's gotta do it, he's gotta work for this guy, it's like, oh god, I hate this guy so much. Toyland was so weird, I mean, I'm gonna harken back to your little Wizard of, your Wizard of Oz is a metaphor for capitalism. I was like, okay, so we show up to a town that is a country, that is a factory, that is owned and ruled by the toy maker who is the mayor who can perform legally binding marriage ceremonies and is also the employer um, who also has bunkhouses built into the factory. So this guy owns you. It's a company town. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's the ideal company town from the business's perspective because it is surrounded by a <laughs> the forest evil of no forest that eats you. <laughs> if you leave, you will die. Yeah, you're free to leave anytime you want. Yeah. You just have to go through this forest of anthropomorphic trees that will eat you. Yeah. They are clearly being paid by him. Yeah, on the payroll. Because they're saying he's the boss. Or yeah. he's the toy maker and he made them. So, wait, wait, wait. Edwin, the toy maker, either created these monster trees or he's paying them on the down low in order to keep all of his employees from leaving his conscripted service in the company town because he pays them nothing uh, because he's a lunatic. And they still left, despite the fact that he, he said, if you leave, you're going to be eaten by a tree. They took their chances with the tree, got eaten, and they were like, worth it. This is better than working with Edwin. <laughs> I mean, now I'm like now imagining this whole like worker revolt striking union and Edwin just being like, oh, you can leave at any time. <laughs> Cuts to the picket line going to the forest of no return. And then Grumio watches all of his co-workers get devoured by trees and he's like, I'm staying. And he has to make a uh, an automation machine. Today. An automation machine because automation reigns supreme. Yes, it does. Oh, wow. Yeah, so that's what happens. I think that's the backstory. I think we can go through this now very fast. And it is true capitalism because every invention Grumio makes, he is reminded... You are the toy maker's assistant. I am the toy maker. And takes credit for every one of his inventions and proceeds to ruin it in front of him and blame him for his own mistakes. After uh, this automatic toy making machine is destroyed by Edwin, Tom and Mary and the kids who have shown up and they've been sent to Toyland by the trees to seek their punishment. But for some reason, they voluntarily just offer their services to make all the toys. (laughs) I don't understand why this is. Like, 
they've lost their minds. Did did we touch on this? The the last Wizard of Oz connection we're not getting from this. What's the last Wizard of Oz connection? I did read that apparently Edwin turned down the role of the wizard in the MGM original Wizard of Oz oh, film. Oh, seriously? Because he didn't think the role was big enough. That would have been a perfect role for him. Yeah. Although it would have been maybe a little too comical. Yeah. Like, I mean, it works probably better the way they did it, but I can totally see why. <laughs> can you-, you imagine if they did, like, d- a different voice? Like, the, actual, the, the, the wizard, right? Like, the actual wizard being, like... Uh, with this big booming voice, and they open the curtain, and he's like, don't open that. <laughs> Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. <laughs> so that's why he did this role. It was his second chance. Yeah. He's like, I'm not going to screw up twice. It's like Sean Connery taking uh, <laughs> League of Extraordinary, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Gentlemen. <laughs> it's like, I'm not going to miss out twice. I said no to Lord of the Rings. They volunteer their services to make all the toys, and then Edwin is like, sure, I guess, do it. Yeah. And so they make all the toys for Edwin. At this point, I actually was like, wait, they went into the forest to find the sheep. They didn't find the sheep. It's mid-October, and they're offering their services to now make toys until Christmas. Those sheep are dead, right? Like, yeah, those yeah, sheep dead. aren't coming back. They got eaten by the trees. They were eaten by the trees. Okay, just so we're clear. Yep. They make the toys. They sing a song about how Mary is actually just a wonderful little toy for Tom. And he's going to put her under the tree and she's going to be motionless just like every girl should be. And just he's going to just look at her because that's all she can offer him. And then Barnaby shows up. He shows up at the exact same time that Tommy Kirk comes back. Grumio, he's got a new invention. And his invention is not an automaking toy machine. It's a shrink ray. And so he says, here's how we can make toys. We can shrink full-sized things into toy versions of themselves so we can shoot it at a bed and make a toy bed we can shoot it at a table and make a toy table and edwin says this is great i'm gonna shrink everything and then tom piper says you're gonna run out of big stuff to make toys you need four million toys what what are you doing you're just gonna give kids a bunch of small beds and at that point barnaby breaks in and gets the gun I'm kind of condensing some of the timeline here, but let's just say Barnaby takes the gun. He then shrinks Edwin and then he's going to go shrink Tom. And again, here, plot makes no sense because at this point, Edwin turns to Gonzargo and Rodrigo and says, no, (laughs) you do the voice, Bobby. You're better. Don't let them shrink Tom. (laughs) No, don't let them do this to him. (laughs) I, I, no, I, li- I like yours because for a brief second, the toy maker was Christopher Walken. <laughs> no! <laughs> Don't let him shrink Tom. His gun. You know, <laughs> it does the shrinking. <laughs> they, uh, they agree with Edwin that, that he's gone too far, that he can't go around shrinking people. It's okay to murder boys and drown them at they sea. They sang a song about... How bloodthirsty they are. Mm-hmm. They The lyrics of their song was, we do things that are widely seen as inhumane. They're going to drown Tom. They sing a song about how they're going to go throw him in a lagoon and he'll never come back again. But shrink Tom. Yeah. And they say, no, 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 no. We've had a change of conscience. And they refuse. They say, we're going to bring you to justice. And so he's like, um, no. And he just shrinks them. So, okay. Done with them now. And so he shrinks Tom Piper and he ties them up and he says to Mary, you have to marry me now or else I'm going to shrink Tom into oblivion because if I keep shrinking him, he will disappear. So Mary agrees to save Tom's life by marrying Barnaby. Edwin, who is the mayor of Toyland, can perform the ceremony. So he starts performing the ceremony to marry the two of them. But at this point, Tom escapes from his binds and he runs into the back and Toyland has a bunch of toy soldiers. And... 
Somehow these toy soldiers are sentient. Mm-hmm. I know. What happened here? Uh, Rob, what's going on? Nothing. Not just the toy soldiers. All of the militarized toys are sentient. When did this happen? I I don't know. It's never... I noticed that too. None of the other toys are alive. They just all of a sudden, they're, they just introduced... This is this is hat on a hat here, people. Like, this is <laughs> double mumbo jumbo. When, when did these toys... When did these toys get this power? It, because Tom is just like, come toys... Save me! And the toys are like, sure. And you're like, whoa, what? They're prepackaged and ready to ship out to Santa. Yeah. They were yeah. being sent to children alive. <laughs> yeah, they're going to march out <laughs> under the Christmas tree. Yeah. But somehow Tom leads this army of sentient toys, which we were never explained before, but into battle against Barnaby. Barnaby, who is full size, uh, initially doesn't have much trouble dispensing with them, but there's so many of them, and it goes on forever. This is like a 15-minute sequence. It's like the whole third act is just these stop-motion toy soldiers and tanks and, like, little airplanes that are flying around Barnaby as he's like, stop it. Stop it. Stop bugging me. Why are you shooting corks at me? Like, this isn't gonna work. (laughs) Until finally, Mary... Shoots a little toy cork at his gun, which explodes over him and shrinks him. Which doesn't really solve the problem because then him and Tom just have a little toy soldier sword fight for like 15 minutes. Uh, Yeah, they have a toy soldier sword fight. And Mary, for some reason, is still... Doesn't step on him. Doesn't step on him. She does nothing. She could just step on him. She just watches. She is a full-size woman. Yeah. Watching these two tiny toy-sized men fight to the death, yep. and she's just cheering them on. She could just crush him with her thumb. Flick him. Just flick him. You know why? Because she's just a toy. Because she's a dumb woman who can't do math. And she can't, she, she can't figure out the sum that is stepping on him equals dead <laughs> Barnaby, Mary Tom. Foot plus Barnaby equals happy ending. We, uh, we kind of glossed over it. I feel it's just worth noting, just in case for whatever reason anybody wants to watch the movie, there is some... Very racist depictions of indigenous people through action figures in this film. Oh, fuck. I, I totally ignored totally it. Yeah. yeah. Th- that came up and I was like, oh, this is even worse than the Romani stuff. I didn't I didn't care for that one bit. And no, I actually I forgot didn't. about it. I just erased it from my brain. Grumio runs back in, somehow not noticing any of the warfare or screaming that has no, no. gone this on. He does it afterwards. He does it after, but I'm just trying to skip to the end of the movie. We, we forgot to say that Tom kills Barnaby, stabs him, literally just stabs him in the chest. For a Disney movie, I was like, whoa, okay. Like, it's not, like, done off screen or, like, he falls down or he's a victim of his own, like, greed or something. No, Tom just stabs him, like, square, straight in the chest. Uh, and then Grumio comes back and he's got a re-bigifying gun. He's got a re-bigulator. And <laughs> so he, um, he shoots everyone else and makes them regular sized again and then tom and mary go home to get married except they clearly stay there until december in order to make all the toys because when it cuts back to tom and mary's wedding it's like the middle of fucking winter yep remember they were about to get married their wedding was the next day they put off their wedding for like at least three months to just sit in the toy maker shop and make toys for him for no reason. Yep. Maybe he was going to pay them because they do need a livelihood now that they abandoned their sheep to the trees. So ah, they need to make money somehow. I, th- I got that that was the reason they stayed was it was, oh, good. There's a toy factory here the whole time. We could have just all gotten jobs at the factory. <laughs> that the kids' parents once worked at. Yeah. <laughs> and now they're working there. Their parents tried to take them away from Ed Wood. They're like, we want a better life for you. <laughs> oh, I'll no. life away from oh, Ed Wood. No. Oh, no. That's <laughs> and they terrible. just brought them back. 
those poor parents. Do you want to quickly? Do you want to quickly compare this to the end of the Laurel and Hardy one? Yes, I do. Okay, let's just talk about the very ending though. So they have a okay, wedding. Yeah. Not only do they have a wedding, but the trees are fucking there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the trees right. are there. <laughs> like they're part of the crowd. Edwin moved their switch from evil to good. They're like the flower girls or whatnot, and um, they get in their little. A carriage and they fly away like it's the end of Greece. Yep. <laughs> I was going to say the exact same thing. So the Laurel and Hardy version, the third act of that is that uh, Tom and Mary, which is actually Tom and Will Peep in that version, get banished to Boogie Land, which is their version of the Forest of No Return. Uh, Laurel and Hardy rescue them from the Boogie Land. Barnaby, in response, decides to raise up an army of boogeymen. And the boogeymen basically look like the gremlin on the wing of the plane from that Twilight Zone episode that mm. is harassing no. William Shatner. The, the Richard Matheson episode, yeah. Yeah. They're like all covered in fur with like a grotesque, a, a warped and like drooping face. And there's hundreds of them. And then Barnaby leads this army of gremlins on Toyland, which is uh, the – mother goose village in that version and laurel and hardy then enlist an army of animatronic toys which in that version it is explained because they're life-size because uh laurel and hardy misunderstood the instructions they made them too big it was supposed to be 600 soldiers at one feet tall and they made 100 soldiers at six feet tall <laughs> yeah it's the joke and they're like uh spring powered or whatever there's like an on button and then they like march so they're not just magically sentient somehow. And then there is just this, like, Helm's Deep-esque battle <laughs> between this Laurel and Hardy army of toy soldiers and Barnaby's army of horrific gremlins <laughs> in I the town square this of this uh, Mother Goose village. While all of the characters of the and village... They, they demolish the town. They demolish it. They, like light things on fire there's like explosions like the the three little pigs are like running through the village and there's this horrifying shot of like the boogeyman i don't know how else to describe it but this is what they're trying to evoke like breaking into the houses and like stealing the women like and like carrying them out going <laughs> and the women like over their shoulders and they're screaming and stuff Jesus. and you're like what is happening and then my favorite part of the movie Mickey Mouse gets in a Zeppelin and then flies over the battlefield and drops bombs from this Zeppelin on these horrific demons until they shot out of the sky. And then Mickey Mouse has to parachute out of the Zeppelin down to the ground. And watching it, I texted Bobby because I was like, how is this not the Disney version? <laughs> How is the Laurel and Hardy version the one that ends with Mickey Mouse parachuting out of a Zeppelin? Oh, man. And it, uh, this also gets – I like the soldiers in this one too because they don't shy away. Even though they're people in suits for shots of it, their guns break and they keep fighting. A few of the soldiers lose their heads and their headless bodies continue to fight the boogeyman as if nothing has happened. I think it's a fantastic third act. I think the rest <laughs> of the movie is – Complete nonsense, just like the 1961 Disney version. But if you have a chance to watch the Laurel and Hardy version, that third act makes it all worth it. What are we going to say about the 61 version, guys? I think we're done talking about it. Where do you rank it, Rob? Um, this is, yeah, again, lower third. This is below Bedknobs and Broomsticks for sure. Um, it's 
just above The Adventures of Bullwhip Griffin, I think, for me. You'll put it above that? All right, Bobby, what do you say? I mean, I got a little nostalgia for it. There was a few songs that I saw that I remembered, and that was it. And I did like, as you said, that one, uh, the one song, uh, we won't be happy till we get it. Yeah. yeah. I actually like, I think, I think the songs, not all of them, but maybe half of them are pretty good. I kind of understand why the operetta would have been so successful. I think, you know, a good chunk of the songs are memorable. The... I can't do the sum song, although in the context of the 1961 film is offensive. I think it's a nice melody and I could see how in a different context, that would be a nice, fun, pleasant, like kind of funny song, uh, a light song in the middle of a musical. Um, I get why Victor Herbert got a lot of credit for it. I don't really hate the, the music that much. I think it's not bad. Bobby, what do you say about this? Where do you rank it? Maybe above even Stevens. As you, there was, I liked more, like, I actually liked Barnaby's performance, although so many of his jokes and appearances are just overdrawn. Like, he says, come, let's pussyfoot, like, seven fucking times. <laughs> it's either just above or just below, even Stevens. It's really a grab bag. I, I don't know if I'd recommend it much to people. I think you guys are probably got in the right place. It's probably... Just above even Stevens. It's, uh, it's interesting because this, uh, I think I read too that this was, Disney never re-released this one. The Usually they'd, he'd try and re-re- they'd try and re-release movies to get some more traction. I think it said this one never did. Doesn't surprise me. And it, uh, but interesting that the March of the Toy Soldiers is still a big part of the Disney Christmas Parade. Because it's a memorable song. Yeah, like yeah. I've heard that piece of music lots of times. So, you know, Disney can attach itself to that and say, "Oh, this is kind of a Disney song even though it's not." It's yeah. 1903 by guys completely unrelated to Disney. <laughs> um, although there's no copyright on it. So, luckily, Disney can just claim it now. They yeah. say this is ours. So, in 1961, uh Disney actually had a hugely successful year. Babes in Toyland was not a big success, but it didn't matter cuz they were just rolling in it. First movie of the year, 101 Dalmatians. Oh, wow. At the time, most successful animated movie they'd ever released. Second movie of the year, Absent-Minded Professor. Oh, wow. Huge success. Third movie of the year, The Parent Trap. Jesus. Fourth movie of the year, Greyfriars Bobby. Not quite as successful, but I do want to watch it. Apparently, it is about two Scottish men fighting over a dog. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I want to watch that. You've been to Edinburgh. <laughs> Their fifth movie of the year is something called Nikki Wild colon Dog of the North. They released... <laughs> they released two dog movies in a row. Three. Three. 101 Dalmatians, Scottishmen fighting on a dog. Yeah. Well, that was at the beginning of the year. But oh, yes, okay. that year had three dog-themed movies. Um, and then finally, in December of that year, they released Babes in Toyland, which was kind of a swing and a miss. But didn't matter. They had all that Dalmatian money. They were just rolling in it. All right. So I think that's it. What are we going to do next? I got no say, apparently. So I will no, stay you're out. out of this. All right. <laughs> I, have, I, have a, I have a suggestion. All right. What about The Great Muppet Caper? Do I get to talk? You can talk. You just okay. I just can't. I can't suggest any. Okay, I gotcha. <laughs> I am down to delve into the world of the Muppets, especially because those movies might actually be good. I think they're supposed to be good. Well, I've seen the Muppet movie, which is great. I've as a kid, I think I've seen Muppets Take Manhattan because, like, what a. I mean, I get it confused with Jason Takes Manhattan every single time. I don't know which movie's which. Does Kermit only show up to Manhattan in the last ten minutes as well? <laughs> <laughs> spends the spends the rest of the movie on a boat. <laughs> uh, all right, so great Muppet caper then. 
I'm down. Is that like we're not watching the first Muppet? We're just picking a random one. I think it's funny to just go straight to the second one. <laughs> it's a heist movie, right? It's a heist movie starring Muppets? Yeah, I think so. I don't. I actually don't know. I don't know what it's about. I have no idea. Yeah, let's watch it. Done. Okay. All right. Well, uh, Bobby, in your best Edwin impression, please (laughs) tell everyone to tune in next next week to the podcast War Tennis Shoes. Don't forget to tune in next week to your favorite podcast, the podcast War Tennis Shoes. (laughs) Perfect. No, thanks. I'm not thirsty. (laughs) A word past that, Robbie. I'm not doing that anymore. (laughs) Damn it. Come on. No, thanks. Not thirsty. That's the show. If you have a suggestion for a movie we should cover next time, send us an email at thepodcastwartennisshoes at gmail.com. We can also be reached on Facebook and Twitter at podwar. That's at P-O-D-W-O-R-E. And if you like the show, give us a good review on your podcast platform. It really helps us out. We hope you tune in next time. Thanks. Show is worse than the